Amen. Amen. Would you thank the band for just helping us worship? We don't... I know Toby's out of town, and uh, I really appreciate the whole team stepping up and helping. And uh, just want to let them know we appreciate them. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Pastor Dale. I'm one of the teaching pastors here and also one of your missionaries. So open your Bible today to Psalm chapter 1. Now, we're going to be jumping to some different passages as we deal with our myth of the day today. Uh, but uh, you're going to be starting out in Psalm chapter 1, so if you get there, that'll help you. There's also always an outline that Ryan and I and Matt provide, so you can follow that, especially today. It's a little bit of a more, uh, we've got a lot to pack into this sermon, so it'll help you track with me, perhaps, if you uh, choose to follow that today, but that's your choice, all right? So open your Bible, your electronic version, or the good uh, old school, uh, like I'm using up here, to Psalm chapter 1. Can we pray before we study God's word? Father, thank you, thank you. Thank you that as a child of God, you tell us we are your children. We are loved by you. We are secure in that love. Father, even when we mess up, you welcome us, love us to come to you, crawl up on your lap and experience your grace. So Father, as we study your word today, and especially as we study not just your word, but what your word tells us about the word, about your scripture. I pray that you would uh, open our eyes, help us better understand the truth about your truth. And uh, we ask you to teach us uh, in Christ's name. Amen. So about two weeks ago today at this very time, I was thinking, where was I? Um, I wasn't here. I was somewhere between Zurich, Switzerland and Washington, D.C., headed home uh, from Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, it had been a, a great two weeks um, in Nairobi as I had an opportunity to train uh, some pastors and an organization that does nothing but train pastors, and their focus is on pastors that have virtually no education all over Kenya. My route back, just because of a couple of long layovers, about six hours in Zurich alone, for example, uh, was the longest single plane ride I had ever been on. From, from wheels up to wheels down in San Diego was going to be 34 hours. 34 hours. Have you ever done one that long? Yeah, don't. <laughs> don't. But I was uh, approaching the final leg of the trip, so I was feeling pretty good about it. We, between Zurich and, and D.C., I landed in D.C., I had about a three-hour layover, and I, and I went and just kind of checked in to make sure my ticket was okay and everything, and, and I checked into one of those lounges where I could hang out and have internet, and, and, and at this point, I'm 28 hours into the trip, and I've got one more long five-and-a-half-hour flight direct from Washington, D.C. to San Diego, and I am so ready to be home. I am so tired. And, and as I check in with my ticket, the agent says, you know, Mr. Burke, because you have a little bit of status with us, you know, we actually have one first-class seat open if you want it. I said, so you're giving it to me? And she said, no, we don't give those away. She said, but let me see how much it is. And boom, 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 boom. She checks her keyboard. And she says, you know something, you can pay some dollars or actually... They're, they're only asking for X amount of uh, air miles. And if you want to cash in some air miles, we'll upgrade you to first class. Now, you got to know, I am cheap, so I never fly first class. But after 28 hours on a plane, I am wiped out. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, four and a five and a half hours to San Diego, 
first class. I'm just dreaming of maybe having a mimosa and going to sleep, you know, okay. And, and uh, or whatever, coffee, whatever. But, but, but I sleep better on the mimosa than the coffee. So, so I, that was my dream. And I thought this will be great. So I cashed in some air miles. I have plenty of those right now. I cashed in some air miles. I took that final first class seat. And as I settled into it, found myself sitting next to a gentleman from Temecula, California, great guy who I've really enjoyed being next to. But uh, you know, normally I'm thinking, I hope he's as tired as I am because I just kind of want to sleep. And, but you do the courtesy, you're going to be next to each other five and a half hours, so you introduce yourself, where, you, where have you been, where you're coming from. He was coming from somewhere in Germany where his company that he works for, in fact, I think he owns it, is doing a lot of business and and uh, he's a pretty successful guy. So he's uh, flying home. He's eager to get home as I am. And as he asked me, so what do you do? And I said, well, I was in Africa. Uh, my wife and I uh, go there several times a year to train leaders for nonprofits, relief agencies, and churches. And he said, wow, that is fascinating. So then he starts asking me some other questions about how did I get into that and why am I doing that? And and it led to a really good conversation. And then he just, on his own, uh, just, you know, says, well, so obviously you're pretty serious about your faith. He says, for me, I go to church because my wife and kids go to church. He said, but to be real honest, Mr. Burke, I don't buy it anymore. I grew up in a church, and he named the church he grew up in. And he said, I just, I just, he said, well, put it this way, I'm an engineer. And as an engineer, I think differently, and I really am into the science. And, and I, to be honest, as I've examined Christianity and the Bible, I really, I think it's probably good for a lot of people, but I don't buy it. He said, I believe there's a God out there somewhere. And I, in fact, he, he said, in fact, I, I hope the Bible is true. But for me, I struggle with some of it. And it led to a great next three hours of no sleep, but a lot of talk, okay? And we had a great conversation, and I, he shared his story more and asked me questions, and I was able to interact with him respectfully, and he appreciated what I do, and I appreciated his questions. And, and we kind of walked through some questions about the faith. And, and all I can say is by the end of the trip, he says, oh, by the way, here's my card. He gives me his business card, and I kind of whipped out and gave him mine. I said, if you don't mind, let's stay in touch. And I said, let me tell you something. I said, if you want to meet up in Temecula, I'll come up there. Uh, we'll go out for coffee or, or wine tasting, whatever you prefer on me, and we can continue the conversation. And he said, let me think about that. And uh, we parted ways. Um, but that conversation made me think about today. Because I knew on that plane that my next sermon was the topic of what do we believe about God's Word. And one of his major struggles was with whether or not the Bible is true. Whether or not it's really God's revelation or not. And he was honest about his doubts, and I appreciated that. The myth we're looking at today is entitled, The Bible, Is It Outdated and Irrelevant?, what I find in our culture that to a large degree, that is where people are coming from. They have different views, but it's fairly common to run into people who think, you know, I think the Bible is kind of a great book. I'm glad it's there. But, you know, in fact, uh, there's more Bibles sold than any other book. But for me, it's just not where I go. 
It's not my go-to for life. I ran into uh, another man one time on a, on a trip, and he, he had a similar reaction. Usually when they hear what you're doing, they think, wow, that's great that you're willing to make this long trip to help these people in Africa. So they appreciate that. But this other guy, he said, but you know, the Bible, he said, I, I kind of like the Bible, but I don't like all of it. I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you may not know this, Mr. Burke. This was about two years ago. You may not know this, Mr. Burke, but I found a new version of the Bible. I said, what's it like? He said, it's called the red letter edition. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, because I really like Jesus. I don't really like Christianity as a whole, but I like Jesus. And, uh, and, and in this Bible, everything that Jesus says is in red. And so, therefore, I'm able to just read the red parts, and I really like the red parts of Jesus. And I said, that's fascinating. And then as we were talking, I said, you know, now that you brought the subject up, I said, actually, that red part Bible, and I didn't tell him when I had my first one. I did tell him I'd seen those before. This is 1962. In September of 1962, my church gave me this little zipper Bible. It was my first personal Bible, age nine. And in it, everything Jesus says is in red. So that's kind of been around a while, but it was new to him. <laughs> but I didn't tell him that because I didn't want to make him feel bad. But then what I did tell him was this. I said, you know, one of the things you may want to think about is this, if you want me to give you a little feedback. He said, sure, give me some advice. I said, do you know that Jesus in the red part, 92 times when asked questions about God, life, or uh, or eternity, Jesus answered those questions by saying, you know, thus saith the Lord, or thus saith the word, or thus saith, and he quotes the stuff that's in black. So if you really like Jesus, I would encourage you to take his advice and explore the whole Bible, because Jesus really bought into it all. He said, I'd never really thought of that. So the question is, what do you think about this book that we call the Bible? What I want to do today is to point out that it is a book that is quite popular, even more popular than most people think these days. Uh, George Barna's organization did a survey recently, a couple years ago, in which they surveyed Americans in general, not just people that go to church. And here's what he found. He found that 80% of Americans believe the Bible is a sacred book. There's something special about it. On the other extreme, about 21% uh, were antagonistic toward the Bible and felt that the Bible is not at all a sacred book. And in fact, the, the more radical view would even be that the Bible and these ancient ideas that are thousands of years old are actually part of the problems that's causing difficulties in our world. So that's about 21%. And then between those, of that 80%, there's about 20%, about 20% that are actually kind of antagonistic toward the Bible. There's another 20% that are what Barna calls engaged with the Bible, meaning they believe it actually is the Word of God, and they read it at least four times a week. That was Barna's definition in his survey. So about 20 to 21% of the population is engaged with the Bible as a basis of faith, and they're reading it. About 20% are antagonistic toward it, and about 60% of Americans are somewhere in between, believing the Bible is in some degree a sacred book, 
but they're not reading it, and they're not sure if they really believe it or not. And I just want you to know that wherever you're coming from today, you're welcome here at Seacoast. You know, one of the things we want to do is to help you wrestle with those type questions and ask those questions because we don't want you believing that we think that you should have a blind faith where you believe whatever you hear from up here without turning your brain on. We want you to be thinking as you explore this question of Jesus Christ and, and today the Scriptures. We know that about 50% of our culture, for example, 47 to be exact in the survey, 47, almost 50%, about half of the people in our culture, maybe half of those of you in the room even, uh, believe that the Bible is sacred, but uh, so are all the other sacred books, the Quran and the Book of Mormon and others. And about 50% of Americans, 47 actually, believe that all those books are of similar value, that they're all in some way uh, helpful guides to knowing God. The Bible is indeed not a book that people are uninterested in. One final little statistic that I just read, and that is the History Channel uh, recently did a special called The Bible. Now, I have not seen it, so I don't, I'm not endorsing what it says, but it was a mini-series about the Bible. It was done about five years ago. And one thing that they found was the episodes of that series drew 13.1 million viewers. Now, they said, well, how do I measure that? That makes it, by the way, the number one most viewed show outside of sports. Because we all know that the real God is our sports, okay? <laughs> At least for me, I watch the games. It's not my God. But I love to watch sports. But apart from the Super Bowl and other big sporting events the World Series, et cetera, it was the number one watched show for the entire year in our country. So behind the scenes, and it was on the History Channel, not exactly like it's on one of the major networks like ESPN. Come on, loosen up here. Have some fun with me. So the Bible is indeed something that a lot of your friends and my friends are interested in. They really do. 80% think there's something sacred about it. So we don't need to be ashamed of it. In fact, we need to better understand what do we believe. Because if the, the myth is that the Bible is this ancient, outdated, and therefore irrelevant book, what is the truth that we hold to as followers of Jesus Christ? And here's the truth. The truth in your outline is that the Bible is actually God's revelation to mankind. It's God's revealing of himself giving truth concerning himself and life and everything else, not just for now, but for all generations, hence relevant for all generations. Just a quick overview of what the Bible says about the Bible. It doesn't prove that it's right, but know what it says. For example, the Old Testament. I'll just pick two passages. Psalm chapter 1, 1 through 3 says this about the Bible. Look at it with me. Psalm 1 verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk or live following the counsel or the wisdom of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but, verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree that's planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season. Its leaves don't ever wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. See, the Bible promises that it is the source of nourishment 
to the mind, the soul, the heart. Psalm 119, the longest or one of the longest, I think it's the longest of the Psalms, is all about the Word of God. And it goes through every single paragraph in Psalm 119, 176 verses, talks about the nature of the Word of God, what it does for us, what it, you know, the, the, the nature of it and the effect of it on our lives. And, and here's just a quick overview of what it says. I'll put it on the screen so you can follow. It says that it blesses people, causing them to rejoice. It rejoices the soul, delights the heart, helps keep us more pure. It gives us counsel. It revives us when we're depressed. It strengthens us when we're weak, and it creates an awe that's a respectful awe of God. It, it brings God into focus is really what it's saying. It also talks about what it gives. It gives hope, help, comfort, wisdom, loving kindness, forgiveness, understanding. It gives truth, joy, great peace, and stability to life. How good is it? It's better than gold or silver. In fact, it actually says it's better than much gold or silver. It's better, it's sweet. It's as sweet as honey. It's, in fact, honey from the honeycomb, the sweetest of the sweet. And I like this part. What's it make you? It makes you wiser than your enemies, more insightful than your teachers, and smarter than the aged. So if you want to be smarter than the aged, gray hairs around here like me, just get into the Word of God because it makes you smarter than even aged people who have lived and learned all through their life. It's the best source of that type of wisdom. I love those words. And then finally, it says, in other words, it's like a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, which is why we call it the revelation of God's Word. It is the revealing of God to us. Well, that's just a couple from the Old Testament. What about Jesus? What did Jesus, since some, uh, like the gentleman I met on the plane, the second gentleman says, hey, I just kind of like Jesus. I don't like a lot of the stuff in the Bible, but I really like Jesus. Well, what did Jesus think about the Bible? Listen to Matthew chapter 5. Turn there, okay? Matthew chapter 5, I'll just pick a couple verses. This is from the Sermon on the Mount, which is considered one of the very most reliable reflections of of, uh, of, of the historic Jesus. Now, I believe all the scriptures are true about Jesus, but the critics often point to the Sermon on the Mount as maybe the purest expression of what Jesus thought and believed. And that, that's from the critics of Jesus. They say this in verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, why did he say that? Well, it's because Jesus confronted a lot of the teachings of religion in churches. Jesus confronted the religious leaders of his day. Jesus was about to launch into uh, the second part of this sermon where he's going to say things like, hey, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. So Jesus wants them not to misunderstand that he's throwing out the scriptures. So instead he says, you need to understand, do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Verse 17, I did not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. In other words, generation after generation. Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it's accomplished. So for all time, with all the scriptures, Jesus says they can be trusted. Then he adds this. He says, whoever then annuls 
or disavows one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them and teaches them, he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus strongly fulfilled and affirmed the scriptures. I mentioned in my opening the fact that 92 times Jesus quotes the scriptures and says, this is your answer. This is your answer as he quotes the Old Testament. The New Testament gives us uh, a more complete definition of our theology of the scriptures. Uh, Let me just show you one passage, 2 Timothy 3. I'll put this one on the screen to help you keep up with me, beginning in verse 16. It says this, all scripture is inspired by God. That phrase means God breathed. It means breathed out from God. Yes, through human writers, as, but it's saying that, Jesus, that God was inspiring those human writers to write those different books of the Bible. It is inspired by God. It is profitable. Is it relevant? Yeah, it's profitable for, and notice this list, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteous living that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Notice that. It says, first, it teaches us truth, and then if we get off track, it reproves us. It's useful in kind of helping us know, oops, I'm off track. And then it helps us know how to get back on track. It corrects us, and then it trains us for living. You know, it's, it's, it's like the Bible is there no matter where you are in your walk with God, whether you're really learning and, and walking close with Him or whether you're kind of drifted away from him, or wherever you are, the Bible will help you get back on track. It's the promise because it's God-breathed. So it's actually the revelation from God about God, which kind of makes sense because who else is going to tell us truth about God? You ever think about that? I mean, can the smartest people in the world get together and decide what's true about God and heaven and how to get there? I don't know about you, but I really don't have much to offer to that conversation. I have opinions, but when you think about it, no one really understands God. If he exists, the only authority on God is God. And then that God needs to love us enough to choose to communicate to us. But let's move to the second part of this message. We want to understand what we believe the Bible teaches about itself, its value, its inspiration, its reliability. But the question, secondly, is, but why should I believe that it's God's revelation relevant for me? Bring that up. That's the question. Why should I believe that? I want to give you my quick explanation because I think it's important that we know how to intelligently talk with people about our faith, not just, here's what I believe, but so if they said, but why do you believe that? That doesn't make sense to me. How would you explain that? Well, let me give you my short overview. You can write write a few notes if you want. Number one is I start with this point. The character of a loving God anticipates it, 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 if if not even demand it. Uh, You know, as soon as I believe that God exists, and I think there's plenty of evidence for the existence of God, Okay, that's a second, that's another topic. Ryan's already dealt with that, actually. But if I believe there is a God, and if I believe that God is a loving God, then a loving God 
who created humanity would want to communicate to humanity. It would be unloving for me as a father to know things that I know would help my children, but yet I refuse to communicate. I would just say, you know something? I'm going to let my children simply grow up and decide for themselves what makes life work. And I think, well, I, you know, I've kind of been around. I know a lot of things that will help them and avoid a lot of pain in their life, but I'm not going to tell them because I don't want to, I don't want to force my opinions on them. That's not a loving father. Now, a loving father gives his children the freedom to make their own choices and things like that. You know, we, we know that. We're not trying to make our kids be little robots, but yet we want to communicate in love so they understand. God is that kind of a God. He is a God that didn't just create humanity, but when humanity fell into sin and were separated from him and confused and began to think, maybe I don't need God. Maybe I can figure out life on my own. God came and he communicated. So I would expect God to give us communication. And if he expects that communication to be reliable, I would expect it to be written. Does that make sense? Because if God just said, all right, I'll send a prophet every once in a while and the guy will give a great sermon or a great message about me, you know, well, that's cool. But, you know, what about the rest of us that weren't around that day? So it makes sense, is what I'm saying is this. If God exists, you should expect him to have communicated in love truth. And then the only question begins, where do I find that truth? The second reason I think that the Bible is God's revelation is not only does God's character anticipate such communication, but the uniqueness of the Bible verifies it. The uniqueness of the Bible verifies it. In the survey done by Barna, 47% of people in America said they believe that the Bible, the Quran, the Book of Mormon, uh, the, the writings of, of the Buddha, uh, that all of these writings are equally of value and equally perhaps inspired. Maybe they all contain part of the truth. But the question is, all of those books I just mentioned have radically different views of God and radically different views of humanity and radically different views of, of how I am forgiven of my sin and, and, and radically different views of the future. And, 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 the, and, and, and I believe that it's common sense to really understand that Things that teach divergent opinions can't both be right. It's true in mathematics. It's true in physics. I think it's true concerning God. There, if a true God exists, we really don't have the license to remake him the way we want him to be. As one person said one time, some people think all roads lead up the same mountain to God. Well, the question is, but when you get there, who's there? What is the truth about God? And what is unique about the Bible compared to other religious books that claim to be revelations concerning God? Uh, it's not an easy answer, but let me give you how I would explain it to a friend on the plane or to you this morning. Number one is the preservation of the Bible is unique and miraculous. I don't have time today to go into all these details but the fact of the matter is, the Bible, when compared to things like the writings of Plato, the writings of Aristotle, which are, which are awesome and accepted largely in history, 
the Bible has a huge amount of, of, of textual evidence that can be used to test what we have today to make sure that we have a reliable copy or a reliable transcripts of the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic that the Bible was written in. There are actually over 25,000 segments or portions of the Bible, some date to within 25 years of its writing. And you can take those thousands, and there's a whole science of studying those thousands of pieces of the Bible and comparing them and dating them, and you can go back and, and you can document when a change may have happened if something got changed. A scholar theologian that I respect, Dr. Harold Honer, um, got his PhD at Cambridge, said this about the Bible. He says, it's, there's no question that we have 100% of the original text of the Bible. He says, if anything, we probably have 105% because we may have a few extra words that are added to explain something. He said, but there's no way that we have any missing pieces of the Word of God, especially pieces that would change any of our beliefs or theology about God and about life and about Christ, etc. So the, the fact of the matter is, you can know, whether you believe it or not, you can know that when this version of the Bible, and, and all your modern-day versions are reliable translations of the original. They're slightly different, but they're not different in a way that would change any true belief or doctrine. Now, why is that true? It's because the, the Bible we have today, all the modern versions, are not the result of what used to be called like the telephone game. Remember the telephone game where someone has a, a statement and they whisper it to someone else and they whisper it to someone else and you see how much it changes as it goes around the room? The Bible is not that. The Bible today is compiled by taking, going back, reconstructing the most reliable Greek Hebrew versions of the, of the Old and New Testament uh, which are getting better and better the more, the more they're able to study it. And then from that, with more and more knowledge of these languages, they're able to translate the version that you have. So the Bible today, you can confidently say, again, whether you believe it or not, it is more reliably preserved than any other ancient book. I mentioned uh, Plato and Aristotle. Just as one example, Plato was written claims to have been written in 347 B.C. The oldest copy of Plato, the earliest copy of Plato that we have is from 900 A.D. That's a 1,200-year gap in which we have no evidence of whether or not it was changed. But yet the teachings of Plato are accepted as fact. Whereas in the New Testament, you have thousands of copies and perhaps a 25-year gap from the, from the writing of the Scriptures to the date of the oldest copies and segments, and it's, it's amazing that no other ancient book has that type of textual support to give us confidence that this really is what God communicated. Number two, not just its preservation, which is miraculous, but its unity. The Bible has a lot of unity in what it teaches in spite of being taught in 66 different books, 40 different writers, three different languages, three different continents and cultures, and hundreds, it addresses hundreds of spiritual and moral issues. But yet, even though being written over a 1,500-year time period, it has unity and, 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 and agreement 
on all these controversial issues. Now, are there difficulties in the Bible where we have to study it hard and interpret it carefully? Yeah, there are apparent contradictions in the Scriptures where you read this, and and like in the Gospels, a story that says uh, there was one angel at the tomb, another one, you got two angels at the tomb, and, and, you know, and, and the question is, which is right? And, you know, and when you study those in depth, you realize that, no, they're both right. The one Gospel is focused on the angel that spoke, and quotes him. It doesn't say that there was only one angel. It just says the angel at the tomb spoke, blah, 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 blah. So then when another account says there's two angels, that's not a contradiction. It's an apparent contradiction that when you study it, you realize, no, 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 they're both true. Two different eyewitnesses reporting it differently, but they're actually both very accurate. So yeah, there are things that challenge me as I study the Word of God, but I can tell you that in my 40-plus years of being in this book, uh, I found a lot of things that caused me to scratch my head, but I've never found anything yet that there wasn't a valid explanation for it uh, to validate the authenticity and the accuracy of this book. Its unity is, is a sign that there's a common author behind all the human authors. Make sense? So the preservation, the unity, the honesty of the Bible is another one, the honesty of the Scriptures. No other ancient literature records, when it records history, the flaws and moral failures of its heroes. Interesting. The Pharaohs, for example, only recorded their victories, not their defeats. And that's how history has been recorded for centuries and centuries of time. The Bible comes along, and thousands of years ago, the Bible says, let me just tell you the truth about Moses and Abraham and Noah and Peter, all the prophets, all the big founders of our faith, King David committed murder, and had an affair. And it's recorded. Abraham was a liar and a fearful guy, and it's recorded. Moses loses his temper, kills a man, and it's recorded. I just want you to understand the uniqueness. The Bible is unique in that. Now, does that prove it's written by God? Not by itself, but, you know, it's one more way in which it shows the fingerprints of God on this book. Because God is truth. God is honest. So God tells it more honestly than humans do. It's another point of like the fingerprints of God. Its accuracy in archaeology and history has consistently been supported. Its accuracy even in the realm of science when it touches science has been documented. Even though the Bible is not written to be a science book in science language. So don't try to read that into it. But yet the Bible is clear. For example, the issue of creation. The Bible, no matter how you believe God did it, uh, backs up what science tells us today that everything that exists could not have existed without a supreme intelligence behind it. A Nobel Prize winning Dr. Arthur Compton in physics won the Nobel Prize. He wrote this when asked about his belief in God. 
He said, for myself, faith begins with the realization, quotes on the screen, that a supreme intelligence brought the universe into being and created man. It is not difficult for me to have this faith, for it is incontrovertible that where there is a plan, there must be intelligence. An orderly unfolding universe testifies to the truth of the most magnificent statement ever uttered. In the beginning, God created. Recent research and the understanding of DNA and the complexity of even a single cell indicates more and more how these things, whether you're studying a single cell or something as complex as the human eye, really could not, no matter how much time is given, simply evolved and come to be because they're too complex with multiple parts that have to fit together just right or else the whole thing doesn't work. So it can't evolve over time. It's all got to be created at the same time. There is an intelligent creator, and he's the one behind this book, which we call the Scriptures. It's accurate in history. It's accurate in science. It's accurate in prophecy. Uh, the, the fact that there are prophecies in the Scripture that are amazing, that unveil the idea that these prophets predicted things that came true, especially in the life of Jesus and his life and his death, his birth, life, and death, and how he would, that would all happen. Those prophecies are amazing. There's one study by a Stanford statistician who, did, who said that just eight of the major truths about Jesus, those coming fulfilled in one person's life, the odds against that was one times 10 to the 17th power. You can't read that up there. That's 17 zeros after that. That's the odds against it just randomly happening, apart from God directing those prophecies and Jesus being the real thing. The illustration he came up with to help us understand that number is it's like you covered the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. You mark one with a black X. You fly someone over in a helicopter blindfolded, and they say, land now, and they get out, they walk, they dig. They have one shot to pull out the one with the black X. So what I'm saying is this. There, the Bible is unique None of these other books contain this type of miraculous prophetic information that was fulfilled. But for me, the strongest evidence of all is the next one. Not only does the nature of the Bible show kind of like the fingerprints of God on it, but number three, the testimony of Jesus really seals it for me. 92 times saying, thus says the Lord, if Jesus was the Son of God, think about this, the living Word, then the Bible must be the inspired Word of God because if the resurrected Christ believed it, then I choose to believe that. And to me, that makes great sense. You say, but Dale, don't we still struggle with some of the Bible's views on things or how God did things in the Bible? Yes, I do. But even that, when you think about it, the very nature of man struggles with the Bible. That's my fourth reason to believe the Bible is really not just a human book, but it's inspired by God. You see, when mankind struggles with it, it tells me this is probably not written by a mere man. For me, I know that I often make mistakes. When I find a book that I agree with everything in it, and it all makes perfect sense, and it's easy for me to believe it all, then I no longer believe that's written by God. 
because I know I'm not God, and God is way above me. So I should expect to struggle with it at times. The very fact that the nature of man struggles with it tells me I should expect it to challenge my mind, challenge even my morality. And last but not least, for thousands of years, the soul of man has been nourished by it. The reason for that is God gave us the scriptures not just for revelation, but for a relationship. He wants that relationship with you. He's reaching out to you and saying, let me talk with you. Let me talk in language that you can read and not just wonder, am I hearing voices? But you have the written word of God. And then you have the revelation of Jesus Christ as the son of God who came to flesh out God, the living word of God. And when the two of them agree, I have high confidence that this book is indeed what it claims to be, and that is the inspired word of God, God's effort to say, I want you to know me, and here's my word. So I want you to know that wherever you are on this issue, my challenge to you is this. All of us have to ask the question, where do I go for truth? Where do you go for truth on God? You can say, well, I think everybody just has to have their own opinion. To me, that doesn't make a lot of sense because I know in my case, Dale's opinion is not worth much. I don't want to trust my soul to Dale's opinion. You can say, well, but you you just kind of have to study all the different views out there and come up with what. But guess what? The collective wisdom of a culture is often proven to be wrong. I don't really want to trust my soul to the collective wisdom of 21st century American thinking. I mean, do we as a culture really think that we can agree on hardly anything? Or I can believe, you know something, it makes sense that if God is real and if God is loving, this book has his fingerprints all over it. You might say it has his tears all over it too because he loves you. He sent his son to die for you and he wants you to know him and he's right here. Let's not be among those 60% of Americans that say, yeah, I think the Bible is probably kind of special, but I never read it. Let's be in the book, humbly listening, learning, and saying, God, You speak, we will listen, and we will follow to the glory of God. Amen. Father God, thank you for the wisdom of your word and all that you've been teaching us. I pray, Father, that um, you would help us now. Uh, Help us to better understand what we believe and why we believe it that we might be agents for truth, that we might be able to lovingly communicate to our culture and our world that is full of questions, good questions, that we might lovingly engage them with your truth. Thank you for it, in Christ's name, amen.